Hello, people. I'm Derek McGinty, sitting virtually alongside my good friend and former NFL Washington football team superstar Charles Mann. And this is the Second Act Podcast, because when life takes you into uncharted waters, we love to hear how you navigate yourself back to home or perhaps somewhere entirely new. The process ain't always pretty, and it sure ain't easy, but it does make for some good conversation. Speaking of which, Charles, how are you doing, man? It's good to hear you again. I am doing fantastic. These are some interesting times and uh, fun topics because I think every successful person has had to go through something to get there. And sometimes they've had to go through a lot of things to get there and we get to find out what they went through. There you go. And I'm glad you brought that up because we both note that this podcast has grown out of both of our career experiences. And Charles, you told me that when the Redskins let you go in 91, it was like at the worst time possible. It really was. Uh, if you remember, that was the one year that Richie Pettibone got to be the head coach of a three and ter- 13 football team. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was not very fun. A lot of us got injured, including me. I had got a, a early injury. I actually hurt myself in preseason working out even before the season started. And then I ignored it. And then in the second game of the season, I injured my knee again. And I made a, a promise to Richie that I would come back in four weeks. Now, how could I make that? I'm not a doctor. I don't know, you know, what the extent of my knee injury was, but they ended up taking out a 50 cent piece worth of a piece of bone off my knee. So they removed that. Yeah, they rem- when I, I, I flew to uh, Birmingham, Alabama to Dr. James Andrews. And when I woke up after the surgery, he had a little cup sitting by my bed and it had, it had a bone chip in it about the size of a 50 cent piece. And that was what he took out of my knee. Wow. Anyway, so he said he didn't he didn't do much and that it would take me four to six weeks to recover. In four weeks, I was back out on, out on the field. And uh, Al Noga, if you remember, he was a defensive end from Minnesota. He was my backup. Got him from Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. And he was my backup and he didn't even hardly play. So... They had me back in there after four weeks. I shouldn't have been playing. I was limping around, but me on one leg, I guess, was better than Al Noga on two legs. So when the season ended, this is this is kind of funny. The season ended, Mark Slareth, who ended up his career with the Denver Broncos and won three Super Bowls, two with them. Uh, Mark and I got went to Dulles Airport and got on planes heading back to Birmingham, Alabama, to Dr. Andrews. He had his knee scoped and his elbow scoped. I had my knee scoped. We both had the same, uh, you know, we had those operations the same day. He did both of us. And the next morning we were flying back to Dulles Airport from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, uh, I get back into town and about two days later, I'm short of breath and can't seem to get get my wind. Uh, we called Arlington Hospital, and they said, we're sending an ambulance. And, my, and I told my wife, I said, no, 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 you drive me, you drive me. So my wife said, no, I'm going to drive my husband. So drove me there. They're waiting for me at the front door. And 10 days later, I check out of the hospital. I have pulmonary embolisms, uh, blood clots in my lungs, and almost died at 34 years old. Ouch. 
And I'd spent 10 days there. I check out uh, at day 10. I'm on Coumadin, blood thinner. And the first thing I do, I go to Redskin Park. I uh, go to work out and I walk in the building with crutches. And uh, the trainer sends me upstairs to meet the new coach, Norv Turner. And within a few minutes, Norv is giving me my marching paper saying, hey, we'd love you to retire. I'm like, huh? He says, we'd, we'd like you to retire. We want to give you a nice send off. I said, I'm not ready to retire. I had a horrible last season. I don't want to end it that way. And he said, well, I don't know what else to do. I said, well, you know what to do. You can cut me. Yeah. He said, why don't you go home, talk about it with your wife and 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 then come back tomorrow morning and we'll see what you want to do. And so I met him in the parking lot at Redskin Park at 830 that morning with my Starbucks in my hand. And uh, and we went in his office and he said, what do you want to do? Well, let's get to our guest for today. He's an old colleague of mine from my short stint at CBS News, Steve Reiner is a man who's held some of the most prestigious and sought-after jobs in broadcasting. He was executive producer for NPR's All Things Considered. More recently, one of the producers for the late, great 60 Minutes correspondent, Morley Safer. But nothing lasts forever, which is why today we're going to talk with Steve about his second act, maybe his third and fourth act as well. Steve joins us from the West Coast. Hey, man, how are you? Derek, it's great to talk to you. And I suppose if I live long enough, I'll just keep on having more and more acts. (laughs) (laughs) exactly i think that's the whole idea and of course we all know what the final act is going to be well then there is that there is that um you know i i I, we we met we met at the public eye with brian gumbel um and i was super excited to be there you were one of the people i came across who was doing a, a lot of really good work um why why did you even end up taking that job because you had a producer job at 60 minutes, which is something that, you know, people may not realize most producers would kill their mom for that job. That's true. But on the other hand, um, I remember Morley uh, saying to me with some amusement, um, referencing what another uh, correspondent had said to him that the relationship between a 60 minutes uh, correspondent and a 60 minutes producer was roughly the relationship between a windshield and a bug. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is crazy. Which is why one can only get squished and splattered so often before one says, you know, this was great. It was exciting. But uh, now I want a bigger office and a bigger paycheck. So um, I, to, to a certain extent, it was a little bit of ambition. Um, I, I had I'd wanted to go into, I suppose, what's called management. But uh, I liked editing. I liked working with a, a number of other, uh, you know, with a diversity of people. And it just seemed like a good time to go. I was also um, an old friend and a former colleague of the fellow who was at that point the executive producer of the program of the Gumbel Show. And it was a startup. It was exciting. You always had great expectations of starting something. That's always very appealing. Um, 60 Minutes after, after All was sort of such an institution that... There was something exciting about going to a new venture. So it was an understandable kind of decision to make. A graduate of the University of Wisconsin? Yes. With a BA in history? Yes. How did that help you? Um, well, it helped me. Uh, I'm not sure the BA in history helped me a whole lot, except uh, at Wisconsin, <laughs> um, I was editor of the campus newspaper, um, which was uh, which was a, a very... 
um, successful, big, powerful newspaper for college newspapers as they were. And of course, I went to uh, college at uh, the height of um, 1960s student activism, the height of the Vietnam War protests. Um, I remember, you know, I was working on the newspaper uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I was working on the newspaper when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Um, wow. So, um, you know, you can just imagine what a time that was to be a college journalist. And um, that really, you know, sort of set me on my path of being a journalist. Madison, Wisconsin at the time was such a, a hotbed that, um, you know, all the mainstream media were interested in news. So I, I was, I had, I had stringer jobs, you know, campus stringer, campus correspondent jobs for Newsweek and for the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, so I was really able to sort of uh, get a real taste of what it was like to be a real journalist. Yeah, you, you were in print for, for quite a while before you even ended up in, in, in broadcast. But, you know, you, you, you did go to broadcast and... We mentioned the Gumble Show. That didn't last but a year. You went back to 60 Minutes. Then you ended up on 60 Minutes 2. And then that was canceled. That's right. And then I went to 48 Hours um, for about two years. And um, and then I decided it was time to maybe leave the business. You said to me that after things kind of fell apart at 60 minutes and you had to go with a show you didn't like as much at 48 hours, that that was a devastating time for you. Can you talk about that? Well, what was devastating was, um, being, um, let go of 60 from 60 minutes to, of course, the show was canceled. Um, so the majority of the staff, the overwhelming majority of the staff, um, was let go. Uh, there were a small handful of people who, um, went back to, or went to 60 minutes, but, uh, you know, being, being a 60 minutes, being a, being a 60 minutes producer, as you alert, as you alluded to a little earlier, was sort of like being a made man, you know, in, in another um, business, they call them made men. Right. And, um, you don't, you don't, you don't, um, you know, when you're a made man, you don't, uh, you know, leave and then come back, which I already did once um, for the gumball show. Right. Um, and, uh, but I, but I don't think you get another, uh, you know, chance at the golden ring. Um, but that was devastating because to some extent it was, uh, it was a self-inflicted wound. I mean, this wouldn't have occurred had I not made that decision, um, to go to work at 60 minutes too, which was, you know, again, understandable. It's a, as, as you know, Derek, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, um, uncertain uh business uh broadcast television journalism uh it's very mercurial um you know depending upon who your boss is who your executive producer is you can be hot one day and ice cold the next day um and um you know you have to you have to learn resilience and sometimes it's very very difficult and um i i had a um a very 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 successful and maybe even charmed career so, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't equipped to deal with, uh, emotionally, I probably wasn't equipped to deal with that kind of setback. You know, sometimes you can start, you know, pinning your identity to your, to your work, to your, to your profession, to your job. And, um, you know, sometimes when you lose it, it's tough. Steve, who was, who was your inspiration as a young man growing up? 
as a young man growing up, who is my inspiration? Wow. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Well, you know, I was, uh, certainly wasn't a, 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 a professional uh, inspiration. You know, uh, you know, I was inspired by, uh, you know, sports figures. I mean, they were my heroes, you know. I was, uh, you know, I was sort of coming in age when the, you know, home run battle between Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris was, uh, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, so I was a New York Yankee fan. And, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris inspired me. You know, um, I, uh, I loved, um, uh, you know, I was, I was into, uh, believe it or not, I actually played the violin when I was a kid. So I was always inspired by sort of great violinists, believe it or not. Um, what about Carl? What about Carl Reiner? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, Carl Reiner is a, is a second cousin, uh, was a second cousin. He passed away about uh, almost a year ago. Um, I wrote a piece about Carl. Um, uh, I, didn't, um, I didn't know Carl particularly when I was growing up. I didn't know Carl when I was um, an adolescent and even a young man. Um, there was, I mean, it's sort of an interesting story to me. Uh, I won't belabor it, but... Um, it's a fascinating story. I read it. I read it. It's great, great article you wrote. Oh, thank you. It was, it was, it was very moving for me to write it. Um, um, and I, and I think people found the emotional, um, uh, you know, sort of strength in it. Basically, uh, you know, my mother, um, uh, was, you know, widowed at a very young age. My father died of polio, died of polio. Um, um, I was only two and, um, um, he came from a very relatively small family that was not that close and had a bunch of sort of rivalries and who knows what going on. Um, so my mother, for whatever reasons, and it were her own psychological reasons, um, decided that she was really not going to, um, you know, maintain connection with, um, uh, the Reiner family. It was very funny before Carl died, I was over at his, house and of course his best friend mel brooks would come by all the time um and mel would say so uh, who but they were hilarious together <laughs> yeah so uh yeah who are you how come i never heard of you you know i never heard of you before who are you how come i never heard of you <laughs> and i would say well and i told him the story and i said if you must know the truth i think i think my mother suffered from poor relative syndrome, <laughs> which is uh, n not exactly a diagnosis, but it, it was that, oh, well, you know, I'm just this poor widowed relative living in New York, and there's Carl Reiner out there in California, rich and famous, and uh, I, I think she was a little intimidated by that. Um, she didn't, she didn't uh, it, it never hit her that, um, and, and she was a very wonderful mother and a, and a wise woman, but, but it never hit her that it would have been very, very good for her son to connect with other people who had his last name. Um, so it really wasn't until I was in my 30s that I, uh, you know, took the opportunity to, um, you know, reach out to the Reiner family. Um, you know, so it took a long time. Wow. All right. Well, that's a, that is a great story. Good, good, good looking out, Charles. I, um, I just wanted to go, go back to our last part of our conversation where you had talked for a second about how tough it was to transition 
out of the job that had sort of been your dream job or at least a dream job. I, you know, went through the same thing to some extent when I left Channel 9 here in Washington. And I wondered um, when, when that happened and you felt the way you felt, you still had to go home. You had a wife, you had a kid. You had to find a way to pick yourself up. Can you talk about what, how that transition happened? Well, it wasn't easy. I was, I was very down for a very long time. And my, and my wife, um, um, and, and, and I would say um, depressed, uh, and even depressed with a capital D. Um, so, uh, you know, I needed, I needed some, um, you know, support. I needed some therapeutic support. Um, I needed to go on antidepressants for a while. Um, and I needed to talk about it. And, um, you know, I, I was, uh, I was angry and I was sort of shattered and I was angry at myself. And so it really took a while. And, you know, fortunately I had a, I have a, a understanding wife and, um, um, you know, I sort of came through it and, um, you know, when, when I, uh, you know, finally, when I went back to work, when I went to 48 hours, I may not have liked it, but I, at least it sort of kept me busy. Um, but, um, it, it was always with a, a sort of a dark, sort of a cloud over my head. You know, um, I always admired marvels to some extent and admired, um, people who, um, you know, just, uh, absolutely did not wear their, uh, their, their defeat on their sleeves, mm. you know, um, uh, you know, usually those are the people who manage to keep on surviving and keep on failing upwards, mm. <laughs> but that's another story. And there, you know, and every business is full of people who fail upwards. Yeah. But you say you you had to you went to forty eight hours you had a cloud over your head and I wonder if that cloud was because you you know were so angry or you were disappointed and when did you find yourself getting over it or did you? I don't think I've ever completely gotten over it. I, you know, I think it I think it left a mark. Uh, you know, the the sort of the fashion in which um, I left sixty minutes. I'm I'm I have the kind of personality that I you know that I always think that I can sort of. Uh, um, you know, find the justice, you know, like, you know, get a just outcome. And uh, it wasn't a just outcome. And it's very, very difficult for me sometimes to accept the fact that, well, that's just what happened, you know? And yes, I moved on. Obviously, I, I moved on. And I had a very successful uh, second or third career, depending upon how you want to look at it, as a, as a, a university professor, which was very successful, which I did for at 12 Stony, years. Stony Brook University. Stony Brook, yeah. Uh, since Stony 2008. Yeah. 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 At Stony Brook University. And, um, uh, you know, it was very funny. I, I, I have a friend who was still at CBS who would tease me, you know, I would, because I, I, I still lived in Manhattan and I, Stony Brook University was 60 miles east on the Long Island Expressway. You had to take a train, which was miserable, or you got to take a car and you got stuck at traffic and it was, you know, not exactly wonderful. And, you know, then you're in the middle of kind of nowhere. And, and I remember, um, you know, my friend Mike would always tease me and said, Steve, you could be sitting at a bar in Paris with Morley Safer, but look what you did. You know, he would, he would tease me about this. <laughs> and after a while it became a running joke, you know, Oh man. but uh, there was sort of a cruel irony in that. In that. How, how funny was that joke? To you? Well, not that funny. Yeah, that joke wasn't probably too funny. Not that funny. <laughs> not that funny, but that's one way to deal with it, you know, to sort of have, yeah. you know, sort of find the humor, find the humor in it. So have you come up with any, any um, 
you know, I, I find that when I'm going through something, uh, it's good to have an outlet, something, some kind of a hobby. I'm a, I'm a movie goer. I love, you know, this pandemic has really hurt me uh, because I love going to the movies for two hours. I get to lose myself. Mm. Nobody's calling me on a cell phone. Nobody's demanding anything from me for two hours. I can just be in the movie. Mm-hmm. What, what are your hobbies, if any? Well, I mean, I, I love to, um, I don't love it, but, 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 but I find that exercise of any kind, whether it's uh, bicycling or I, you know, I love to kayak. I have a kayak, uh, you know, and we live out on Long Island part-time and we go out into the bay and just kayak. And that's very, very calming for me, you know, getting my heart rate up, sweating profusely, you know, all that is good. Um, Mostly, and, and, and then it's friends, you know, and then it's being in social situations where, you know, it's not important, you know, what you do, um, who you are and why people care about you and why you care about people are, have nothing to do with, you know, the jerk who may have laid you off. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where I found my uh, comfort to some extent. Were there any pearls of wisdom that you gained uh, over the last, you know, 10 years or so that you could say, hey, you know what, if you're going through this, this is what you need to keep in mind? Well, you know, I read a story in the New York Times a couple of years ago about about wisdom, you know, and how, how, you know, one of the things in life as you get older is that, you know, if you're lucky, you accumulate wisdom. Uh, And maybe I was about to turn 70 then. And, um, I remember asking myself, well, when the hell am I going to start getting some wisdom about anything? <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if I have, you know, if, if I have, um, wisdom about anything, you know, and so much of it is, it's very easy to sort of understand things in your head, you know, intellectually understand, you know, things it's more, di- you know, more difficult to feel them emotionally, but obviously, you know, there was a, there was a very popular book years ago called, I think it was who moved my cheese or something like that. Um, and it was really all about, you know, accepting the fact that um, there's going to be change. Things are going to change. You know, it's almost sort of in a way kind of a quasi-Buddhist, um, you know, thing about the impermanence of everything. Mm. Mm. Um, and you have to be able to both sort of count on something and give something your all, but at the same time understand that, you know, things are going to change and, uh, you know, whatever it is you do is not who you are, you know, and that's the only, you know, that's the only pearl of wisdom that I can, you know, that I can give that, um, you have to develop a sense of self. Now I may have the pearl of wisdom. It doesn't mean that I live it or practice it (laughs) as much as would be ideal, but that's what we're all trying to do to some extent, you know? Um, so I think that's what I, you know, you know, that's what I learned. I have one last question for you, Steve. Um, given this whole pandemic and what we've been dealing with over the last year, uh, and the fact that Maxwell Reiner, your father died at 34 years old of polio. I know a vaccine came out a year or two after he passed, right? Uh, about yes, yeah, about four years, three or four years after, yeah. Uh, you're 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 a pro vaccine guy, right? Or not? I I am I I I am vaccinated. 
Um, and I am a pro vaccine guy in general, cautious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, my, you know, my son, you know, it wasn't that long ago. He was a kid. Yeah. And there was, you know, a big push to vaccinate with this, that, and the other thing. And there were some times when I was cautious. Uh, there was one time when he got a vaccination and the next time there was a front page story in the New York Times that the vaccine had been pulled oh. because of side effects. So he never got the second and the third one. Um, and I, and I remember, you know, the school he went to insisted that they have chickenpox vaccinations. Hmm. And there were lots of parents who said, no, I don't want to do that. You know, we'll send our kid to a chickenpox party where they catch it, you know, and then they're fine. Like I got chickenpox when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But by and large, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, a paranoid or I'm not a conspiratorial thinker about vaccines. I think it's just absolutely amazing that uh, vaccines were developed so quickly. Oh my God. Yes. I you agree. Know, for COVID. Well, this was, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and being our guest today in our second podcast in the uh, second act podcast. Well, I'm honored. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, you're working with a great guy. I know I am. I, I agree. And from what he tells me, he's working with a great guy, too. So, um... <laughs> Thank you, guys. Steve Reiner, my friend, my colleague, about to begin not his second, but maybe his fourth or fifth act. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We appreciate it. I'm Derek McGinty, and for Charles Mann, I want to thank you for rolling with us through the second act.